Hello, welcome to episode number 250 of the Apologue Podcast. I am your host, Simon Head. Amazon shoppers, take note. It's getting up to be Christmas time. It's time to go buy stuff. It's time to get in lines at shopping malls. You don't need to do that. You can go to Amazon. And when you go to Amazon, you can click through my affiliate link by going to appalogue.ca slash Amazon or appalogue.ca slash US Amazon. You can do it the old-fashioned way, too, by going to appalogue.ca and click on those banners located on the right side. Bookmark all those links. And every time you shop, you'll be supporting the show. And it'll cost you no extra money. And it's awesome. Like, thank everybody for supporting me on Patreon. You too can become a patron by going to patreon.com slash You can pledge as much or as little as you want on a monthly basis to help with hosting and gas fees. And you can cancel at any time. You can go buy a t-shirt by going to appalogue.ca slash shop. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes by going to iTunes. Uh, like the show on Facebook, facebook.com slash pod. Follow me on Twitter at simonhead666. Today on the show, I have Mr. Tyler Illinick from the Raven Drill Podcast. He's also started a documentary a few years ago to cover and basically um, document the 90s music scene from, you know, from grunge to punk rock to all sorts of stuff. And he started it on his own, and right now he's in the midst of trying to pull it all together. But with that, he's actually doing a podcast. It's called the Raven Drill Podcast, and it's he's five or six episodes in, and he's got some nice, cool guests on there. And here he is, Mr. Tyler Illinick from the Raven Drill Podcast on the Apple Podcast. You know what? I wonder if kids that have complicated last names are better spellers in life. <laughs> it's it's cool. Spelling was my best subject, man. I'm not gonna that's, put on airs, but just that's cool. Might be something to do with it, man. You might yeah. be on something. Yeah. So where are you based? Where are you based out of? Uh, Regina, Saskatchewan. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've been there a bunch of times. I used to play in a band out of Winnipeg called Red Fisher. Oh, okay, so cool. I'd, I'd come out there, and actually, the drummer from the Weaker Thans uh, left Red Fisher to be the Weaker Thans, which is Jason. Oh, so there's a bit of a weird connection there between, um, you know, Propagandy and all those bands from Winnipeg right. and things like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. What did you think of that Chad Wickerthin's tribute album that just got released? I, uh, I've only heard the one song, but my friends from Lois Lowe had one song in there too. I think they did. Right, that's uh, how I found Handful out about it was their Twitter, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's good. It's, I heard a few songs because uh, I think they only let a couple on Spotify available. So then... Hmm. So, but now it's, I think, is the whole thing out now? Uh, I, th well, I think it's on their band camp. Yeah. I'm not sure if it's on Spotify. But... Oh, okay. Band camp. Yeah. That's where I'm, yeah. Right. So, uh, you've been out there your whole life in, in the Regina's? Yeah. More or less. I've lived, uh, lived in LA for a bit, lived in Dublin for a bit, lived in, for a few months working and, but basically Regina. Yeah. 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 Now, are you born there or you did, how did yeah, you? born and raised. Yeah. Know? Yeah. Yeah. So, the thing about Regina is it gets cold. It's really cold in the winter. It does indeed. Yeah. Right in the heartland there, it does get a little frosty. Today actually was decent. It was not the best uh, looking day. It was kind of dreary to look at, but the temperature wise was decent. So Yeah. 
Yeah, there's a really really cool band out of Regina called Mrs. Fenson. Is that the, right. is that your era? I think it's uh, Mrs. Fenson. I think is a little earlier. Yeah, or a little later. My my window is like, I don't know. They never really got out of the province much. It's called the Minnow. You know, mm-hmm. I've heard of the name. Yeah. yeah, they were they were buddies with Jason Plum, and actually, the a couple of the guys played with Jason Plum and the Willing afterwards. But that was my window. A couple independent releases, but never got signed to anybody. Yeah, yeah. So um, there's a guy out there, Zen, uh, who's I think he's still he's still out there. He's he's an old friend of ours, of mine. From yeah, I've known him since the early '90s. And so so what sort of like what era of of music? Because you you have a podcast that's based on '90s type music, right? Correct. Yeah. And what sort of? I mean, how old are you? I'm 41. Yeah. So you're kind of in that sweet spot where. Like you were how old in the early nineties? You would have been Yeah, so I was seventy eight, so I was trying to sneak into Glue Lake gigs and Our Lady Peace gigs and I was about sixteen, seventeen. Mm-hmm. And going mm-hmm. to Edge Fest when uh, Edge Fest when I was uh, turned nineteen was one of the Edge Fests. I remember that going to Saskatoon to see it. Mm-hmm. And that was a big deal because we got in the strip club for the first time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, that, and that was a big for a young man. So I yeah, I remember the timing well. I did one Edge Fest with Treble Charger. Oh, right now. Yeah. Was it, was it, was, yeah, that was Edgefest. And then we did Somersault, which was the next year. Right. That was, uh, yeah, 99, 2000 or somewhere in that, yeah. that, era, that era. I just listened to your Bill Priddle interview today, actually. It was great. I have, the guy's like a ghost, man. No social media presence, man. <laughs> you know, you, you just can't track that man down. So I was like, I was hungry to hear the info. He had some. He, had, he was pretty honest too. It was a pretty good interview. Oh yeah, no, he's good. And also, there's a there's um, Greg Norrie's on here too. Um, yeah, I saw that. I got it queued up for uh, later in the week. I was, I was going through the back catalog. I listened to Adam Ludekai. I always thought it was Ludeki, but it's Ludekai from Punch Buggy. Yeah, yeah. He's been a he's been following the account on Instagram, so we kind of uh, connected that way and messaging a little back and forth seems like a real good guys yeah no it's you see that's sort of that is my this podcast is based around 90 stuff so i think there's a no better guest than you who's who's also dealing in the same uh genre-esque yeah, yeah. we definitely got a kinship in that regard for sure yeah 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 so what what so you this isn't just a podcast though you're doing other things right yeah well it initially started out with trying to raise enough funds this idea this kind of originated Years and years ago, when I was uh, working back in the film industry, when, we, when Saskatchewan still really kind of had one, it's kind of faded away due to different changing politics and whatnot. But back when it was still had enough of infrastructure, I was working in the film industry, and I got this idea to to make a, a documentary based on the music that I loved. And kind of actually, the, the, let me backtrack even a little bit further back than that was I was working at H and V, incidentally. A little older than I was, but he was holding on to the job once a week just to so get a deal on records, right? Mm-hmm. Get that extra staff discount. And we were just reminiscing on like a slow Thursday or something about, you know, the era of the 90s and all the bands that were awesome and all the bands we loved. So we just punched up on the database and tried to see how they were selling and, you know, what kind of interest. And to my surprise and to his, a lot of them were even out of print. And this was still when CDs were really a thing. This was before streaming had really taken over. So we were kind of shocked by that. So saying Google searches, trying to track down these guys. And I kind of discovered that a lot of them made their last record in and around the same time within like the same two or three year window. And so I just kind of wanted to know why that was and kind of to catch up with them now and see what they were doing. And this was before people like Moist had gotten back together or Lois or Low or people like that. Or I Mother Earth was 
still with Brian and mm-hmm. we're, you know, and, uh, got to start doing some research and I was got a job at a film company. So I had access to all the film equipment. So I started shooting interviews with people who would ever come through town. Like Ken Tizzard from the Washington was my first interview. And he really set the stage cause it was like an hour and a half conversation. That was just brilliant. So I shot a bunch of those and was, was going pretty well until, um, the film industry kind of collapsed here. And so I kind of had to get a new job and a new kind of focus in life and went and did some traveling, did some other things. And then a few years ago, I just said, well, nobody's really still made the movie I wanted to make. So let me try this crowdfunding game out and see what kind of comes from that. So I threw up like a Kickstarter and that didn't really didn't get the goal, but it did get um, national attention based on like a year's old trailer. Like CBC was doing articles about it, doing radio radio appearances and Yahoo did a story about it. And, you know, just, you know, based because the music is that important to the people in that, in that era is so mm-hmm. important to people. It wasn't what I was doing. It was just like people, somebody's documenting it. And it just happened to be, I was the, the guy who was kind of out there and put my face out there to do it. And that sprung to like an Indiegogo and I raised enough money to get out to Toronto. And I hooked up with a few um, people from the, you know, a little bit older than me, but had been, you know, in their twenties when this was happening when I was in my teens and shot some more interviews and, we kind of worked at that for a year and year and a half and we couldn't really get it past the stage that people started putting in money or starting to put it to the next plateau where we can finish this thing. Cause it's a big project. I mean, yeah. it's not just securing money to get equipment. It's, you know, you have to clear the footage from much music. That's expensive. You oh, yeah. have to clear footage from CBC. That's expensive. You have to clear the songs from the labels. That's expensive. All that has a cost to it. So, while that kind of is stagnating a little bit, I started to launch the podcast to a give people who have been supporting the project all these years content, mm-hmm. uh, b to kind of do research for the film because you can do a lot of things, as you know, that you can't do in like a film format. I mean, like I talked to the monoxides in the first episode, and you know Ken's telling this great story about how the monoxides name came to be and that's something that necessarily wouldn't be in the film which is a larger story yeah. but it's a nice specific story to that band or that person for that episode so mm-hmm. it kind of gives people so a, a little bit different look into these into these uh, artists as well yeah definitely the um, the good thing about podcasts is you can you're right you can comp- compartmentalize a story that has a constant theme like there's a constant theme in in this show that where it's people really had, you know, their their lives in their early 20s were about playing music or being involved with music, then life changed. And then life right. became more of a priority of in putting stuff in this, like, you know, you know, giving to society rather than taking from, you know. And then right, yeah. people realized in their life that it's time to grow up. And that's, that's a broad statement, you know what I mean? So some people, there's been a few people like, no, no, I'm probably going to die in a van, like... You know, on tour, high on drugs, and, and that's fine. You know, there's people I have appreciation for that as well because yeah, God bless them. We need people like that. Absolutely, <laughs> not everybody can be that guy. Yeah, right. You know, the world needs yeah crazy people, and um, because it gives perspective to like just to try to put it all into like a into a story. And so what you're saying is interesting because it does tie into the actual theme of this show. It's like people get older and people prioritize that music isn't, it's very important in their lives, but it's not the be all and end all of life anymore. There's more things involved, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, going to a Tuesday night show 
would have been a second thought when I was 20. Now you get to 40, you're like, God damn it, I got to work tomorrow. If I can work eight hours a day, I'm tired, my knee hurts, you know, from yeah. hockey, from 20 years of hockey. It's like, man, things, yeah. it's not as easy as it used to be. I mean, so I couldn't imagine being an artist and having to do the rigors of touring and, and, and you know, just rehearsing for that tour and then rehearsing and writing songs and, you know, it just, it's, it's, it's a weird thing. And I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm learning something every time I talk to somebody about, you know, being a musician and, you know, somebody who was making records and somebody who has slowed down making records, but it's still active and plays a few shows or some of them don't play any shows and yeah. both things are interesting. So it's, it's really been a fascinating journey. Yeah. And do you find out like, I really, I can now pinpoint when the music industry kind of died and that's the early two thousands. Like, yeah, exactly. It, it's just shit went downhill, and 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 you know, and people blame Napster, and people blamed file sharing, and and all that stuff. But I I really blame the record industry for not being able to get on top of supporting bands. You know. Yeah, right. That's that's part of like the quest initially when I had this idea was like, why did it all keep, seem to stop at once? I mean. A band like the Gandarvas made their most successful record was sold for a smile, like two big video hits, mainstream success, and then that was their last record. Yeah. You know, and it's like, you know, Moist made a last record in like 2000. Like Watchmen, I think it was 2001 or, or somewhere within a year or two. I might not know the exact sure. yeah. date off the top of my head, but it just seemed all seemed to stop at once. And these were bands that were pivotal. I mean, you might not like the material they made, but you have to acknowledge that they were successful bands who did well, who had a legion of fans that followed and supported them all the way. And it was just interesting to me that it all kind of seemed to end at once. Small bands, big bands all came kind of made their last record. And and to your point, it was file sharing came into B, the internet and record labels couldn't cope. And then record labels were also getting amalgamated where this record label is getting bought out by this one and this one. And all of a sudden the band, the person who fought for that band is now fired and gone. So there's nobody with, you know, for, you know, I don't know if it happened with the Gandarvis, but whoever they're, they, the person who loved the Gandarvis is all of a sudden gone. There's nobody left to fight for him in the same way that that person did. And I think yeah. that's part of the, I mean, it's, it's, it's an interesting story, which is kind of why I'm trying to pursue it is just like, why, I mean, yeah, every ba- every decade has its run and all these kinds of things, but the nineties are kind of unique in a way that because of the way the internet kind of changed within that decade and because of the success of, you know, major, major bands all kind of just seem to stop. I mean, I don't know. It's just fascinating to me. And I just, it, it just always stuck with me and I'm always interested in, I mean, I may never, may never find the answer. It may be mm. as simple as what you and I have just discussed, but it may be something a little more complicated than that. And everybody has their own story. And, yeah. you know, so it's just, it's really interesting uh, landscape to kind of uh, travel. Yeah. What you said about A&R people and people that were supporting the bands were actually, they're getting fired. They're also saving their own, trying to save their own necks. So True. what they were also, the other thing I noticed that was happening is that they were signing like four bands that all kind of sounded the same. And then mm. it's like literally throwing a big chunk of shit at the wall and going, okay, which one's going to stay up there the highest? The <laughs> one that can stay there the longest is the one we're going to stay with. And that's, right. there was a lot of bands that sort of like, well, you got to kind of sound like this and sound like that. And, you know, and it, we, everybody kind of fell into the trap of like, here's what the industry's doing. Got to follow it. You got to do it. And it was the nose to spite your face, like people making decisions that were based on poorly poorly because you know you think about the 90s when you have like nirvana green day all these great bands offspring that just sort of like exploded 
all by accident. And you can't recreate that. Like you can't just create that fire in 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 in, in a Again, it just never happens twice. So people are trying to make it happen twice, and that's where the industry got kind of caught. Is because they were trying to find the same another Blink One Eighty Two. They're trying to find another Green Day. They're trying to find you know, and they it always is pale, bad imitations of the same bands, right? Yeah, exactly. It has to happen organically. You know, it's like you know, I was talking with the Watchmen guys um, through the basic interviews, and the basic came down to when Moby and the DJ culture kind of started to take hold in like 98, 99, the labels coming to them and say, well, you need to sound more like that. You need to bring in these elements. Why don't you try this? Why don't you try that? Trying to take away from what made them great to begin with. Yeah. And then try to, you know, and, you know, not just, have, you know, it's one thing if they found that on their own and which is perfectly fine. You want to mm-hmm. grow as a musician, totally cool. But to have somebody thrust it upon you and say, I think you'll sell more records if you do this. And it's like, well, they've been doing pretty good on their own. I mean, this, the, yeah. the, the stereo record, you know, Silent Radio is a pretty big record. Then all of a sudden you're trying to like get involved in the creative process and trying to listen to the outside world. And the labels, I think, kind of tripped on their own two feet in that respect. Yeah. And they're trying to, they're trying to <clears throat> trying to put their influence and their mark on a band that might not need it. They might be doing their own thing and growing as a band and be get it, becoming better songwriters. And then you know, I like cause I worked with Trouble Charger when they were demoing uh, for American Psycho, and oh, yes. people were just like, time for that. Band, yeah, yeah, they were demoing in my studio. You know, no, right and so we were like, they were freaking out because they didn't know what they were going to do. They didn't have any songs. Greg had a few, Bill had about five and they just started writing. And then they got this, Matt Hyde was their producer and he came in <clears throat> and kind of helped them along the way. But also, I don't know if anybody's ever realized this, but American Psycho has Matt Hyde as the producer, but Matt Hyde also produced Spiderwebs by No Doubt. And you can oh. take No Doubt Spiderwebs and American Psycho and put those two songs together and it's the same song, except for the really? bridge. Yeah. That's interesting. The chords are the same. It's, but that's Matt Hyde. Matt Hyde produced Spiderwebs, so therefore, kind of threw that mark again. And I mean, it happens today in country music all the time, where it's like that same chord progression, you know, happens again. Greg's right. probably going to hate that. The band who wrote Red. I mean, that's Red is like an iconic song. Of Absolutely, not just a decade, but in Canadian history, really. I mean, that's a fucking beautiful song. Yeah, yeah. interesting to see a label producer be able to to uh, put their stamp on it in such a significant way, uh, yeah. you know, when they, when a band has that much creativity on their own. And that was the other thing too, is like the, the, the managers got involved and said, Hey Bill, you can't wear glasses anymore. Uh, Bill, Hey, Jeez. you gotta lose some weight. Hey Bill, maybe you shouldn't sing so many songs. We're going to make one singer because there's only one, you know, one Billy Joe Armstrong and, 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 you know, and then all of a sudden right. Blink-22 broke big and it was like, Oh, I guess it's okay to have two singers now. You know, it's <laughs> so fickle. So yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> You know, it's brutal. Yeah, and Greg definitely had the more Billy Joe vibe, I think, than than Mr. Priddle. Uh, yeah. Mr. Priddle's more of a, you know the introspective John Lennon vibe, and then yeah. Greg Norris more of the punk rock. Yeah, Billy Joe Armstrong vibe. Yeah, so, they yeah. was they were a great duo. You know, it was funny definitely, like that, definitely as, the yin and yang situation. Yeah, I mean, yeah. just even physically looking. Yeah, let alone the songs they wrote. And they grew up together. Like they like had cottages like down the lake from each other. And and Greg <laughs> tells me stories. He's like, you know, I didn't want Bill in my band because he wore glasses. But my pa- his parents, <laughs> my parents made Bill in the band. And I don't, you know, it's very funny because you know here he is. He's a full grown man. I think they still do shows, but I don't think they do it like as much as obviously as, as they used to. But but I mean, the good thing to come out of all that was some forty one because Greg basically brought that band and. 
that's one of those bands that stayed there. Like they stuck around. It didn't cost anybody any extra money. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they made, you know, Greg really supported them. You know, he put a lot of work yeah, into that band. Yeah. I, that's why I'm actually looking forward to listening to that episode to see if you guys touch on that, how that kind of came to be. Cause it's, you know, you can only find so much on the internet through various interviews or articles. So I'm actually, yeah. Yeah, you know, and he he got kind of well. I mean, they you know they fired him, but they fired him over the phone, which is not a Jeez. good way to get fired. And no. uh, you know, I think they're back. I think they've patched things up. But uh, you know, you think about you put your whole life into these kids. They're children. You know what I mean? Like they were children, right, they were seventeen right. years old when they got signed to Island Records, and and here they are touring all over the place and actually surpassing record sales of Trouble Charger. And then, you know, when they're done, they kind of, you know, oh, we're done. We don't, you know, we need a better producer or we need a better um, manager because we need to get to the next level. It really does suck. It's, it's you know, whatever. I think they've patched it up. Well, that's cool. That's cool. I actually was looking through, uh, I think it was like within this last year, like old, uh, like I always do like a lot of posts on the social media, like Throwback Thursday and all this kind of stuff where I'm trying to find these old video clips on the YouTube or whatnot. And I actually found a John vision episode. You know, John. Yeah. Oh yeah. Right? yeah Jonathan Torrance. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's right. Big show for the nineties. A John vision, which was like a, a weird kind of John battle of bands. It was against John Palooza maybe. <laughs> and there's like a some 41 performance within like the context of like six or seven bands performing on this one, this one episode of John vision. It was just amazing. The kind of little nugget that was just kind of buried in within this little video. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, another another band, I think they were called something, oh, I can't, but Liam Colleen, the guy ended up managing, he works for Coalition, he manages the Tea Party, uh, and Coalition's the, 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 the group that manages like Our Lady Peace and all these, you know, other bands. He, his yeah, that's, band. Uh, uh, Lanny, Rob Lanny. Yeah, Rob Lanny, yeah. Right. He, um, this, and so, and his, uh, he has a partner as well, but it's Rob Lanny. Robin in, uh, Arnold, actually. I think Arnold yes. is part of it too, uh, from Frozen Ghost. Um, right. An 80s callback, actually. Um, and big time 90s producer as well. He produced oh, yeah. some seminal records in the 90s. Oh, he man. did. Yeah. He did all that Our Lady Peace too, right? Any, the early stuff? First, I think two or three records, 11 record yeah. tip. Yeah, but um, Liam is also on that show and his ska band, hmm, and really? he's like, yeah, Liam Colleen. He's uh, he's uh, he's actually on the show too. Like um, a couple of years ago, he was on the show. But yeah, he was also you, yeah. You're teasing it during the Bill Priddle, the Bill Priddle, the Bill Priddle episode. You were teasing Liam Colleen as oh, the next cool. episode. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's why that name comes right to Bill. He was my uh, he was a work study, or like a, he did a co-op placement at my recording studio. <laughs> and I, I actually take credit to getting him through uh, high school because he got two extra credits instead of one, <laughs> which got him through high school. So uh, he owes me. <laughs> you were the deciding factor. That's right. Uh, yeah, that's sweet. Yeah, yeah. It all yeah. comes down to Simon Head. Yeah. Right. Did you ever play music? You band bands. I never stuff? did. Yeah. I, I tried to learn guitar about four or five times. We never had the discipline to stick with it. So yeah. I've always been the. The music geek is not to play music. So, that's well, that's, I mean, that's role. a rare breed, but I think you appreciate it more because you can sort of look at music more subjectively rather than, uh, uh, I rather than being a music. I, I think that's a different, it's a different look at, at appreciating music. Yeah. I, yeah. You're probably right. Cause I'm not looking at if they're playing certain chords or I'm not looking if the snare drum is in the perfect, if, how, how good is that fill? Mm-hmm. You know, I recognize those things after years and years, but it's not the first thing that pops my mind. You know, it just enjoy the song as it is, and then, you know, 
break it down maybe afterwards oh i like that vocal of that chorus or yeah it's 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 got to be a different thing to be to actually know how to play something and then listen to it it's like knowing how the sausage is made right yeah yeah yeah, it's true because you can get in your brain trying to trying to break down what a song is and then maybe getting a little jaded because it's like because a lot of people are pissed that they never came up with the idea, so it's a bad idea. Right. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That song sucks. And why? Oh, because it's so popular. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So you're, um, so are you going to make it out to Toronto at all? Are you still? So is this is this movie? Is this documentary? Is it going to eventually get off the ground? Or are you? What's is it to put it to rest right now? What's what's the what's the deal with it? No, it's uh, we're still calling it in the. In the uh, in the film TV world, like in, in development. Mm-hmm. So I'm actually reconnected with um, another director who's recently done a music documentary and we're going to, and he's really interested into it. And the, the team that helped him make his, his film uh, have also expressed some interest. So I'm still working towards getting, I mean, initially I was going to direct and then as things develop, you're thinking, well, um, I'd probably be more suited to be like a producer writer kind of vibe on it just because you need somebody with a whole good of bankable credits to, you know, people yeah. you need somebody with a tracker, which is totally understandable. So this, this dude uh, is a big fan of the era and a big fan. He's around my age and uh, I don't want to announce any names yet just because mm-hmm. nothing's completely concrete, but things are still moving in that direction. So we've also got like another project on the go that might tie into it to make sort more of a web presence to kind of make Raven Drool in the era more of a presence on the web as opposed to just a cast. So yeah, the film uh, we're actually thinking about um, actually turning, the, which was initially a 90 minute type of feature film into a four part kind of TV hour film series. So four TV hours, just cause you can tell more of a story. And I think you can probably um, get some of the broadcast. They think they have content for four weeks as opposed to one 90 minute block. Yeah. So we're thinking that might be the way to go to kind of take it to the next level. So yeah, it's still, it's still very much the number one goal of this whole idea is to get the kind of film or TV project made and represent this in a visual form, just because, you know, it's, it's, you know, the music to, to tie with the visuals of bringing back all the nostalgia, I think really ties together and just to see how everybody was myself included 25 years ago or 20 years ago. And then to see how kind of everybody is now and just, you know, it really kind of, um, I don't know how to put this eloquently, but really kind of, uh, actually, I'm not going to put it anyway as all. Cause I lost my train of thought, but <laughs> no, <laughs> I'll no, stop it's fine. right there. Continue Mr. Head. No, it, it gives it, um, yeah, you have to have a, a pre and post Nirvana. You know what I mean? Like that's sort of like yes. yeah, <laughs> a PN and a, a PN and a PPN. You know, that's right. Because there's definitely a big, you know, obviously a big shift between 1990 and 1991. You know, like the the world forever changed. You know, based on the fact that you know it's a, it's an age old story that you know a band like Nirvana <clears throat> were like dudes that toured in clubs. You know, and and, and it. That whole idea on how that band becomes became super successful is it's well documented, but it's still amazing. You can't describe, you know, how that sort of thing, you know, and you think about Kurt Cobain and how his life became sort of like even more complicated uh, based on the fact of success and fame. Like, what do you, what do you, how do you, what do you take home from all that? I was a Nirvana guy, but they were second to Pearl Jam, which has always been my, my number one from my era. American-wise, anyways. 
it, the, the Nirvana thing, it was just like, I was always one of those guys. I mean, I don't know the intricacies of dealing with fame or being a musician, but I was, and Neil Young actually echoed this in a, in a later Nirvana documentary, which was like, if he had called me, I would have just said, stop, just stop what you're doing. Don't do any more press. Don't do, don't tour, just stop. You know, nobody's forcing you to do these things and they're forcing you in a way, but you can just walk away and go live on a beach in Bali or something, you know? So I was always like, like that was what I was kind of thinking as, as a, I mean, it was sad that it happened. It's tragic to lose somebody of that talent, but it was just always like, if, if that's the problem, I mean, if the music and the success is the problem, then just stop. I mean, if there, if there's another problem, but that's what people seem to be blaming it on. Was, was him killing himself because he was too successful or because he couldn't do what he want or, you know, all those kind of everything to do with music is what I remember reading about. And I'm not sure if that was, you know, if that was the case, like the Neil Young viewpoint kind of rings true. He said, just, you know, he, if I would have talked to him, I would have just said, stop, you know, stop, just don't do anything else. Just go away for five years, you know, and, and just get straight, you know, but I don't know. It's a, it's a weird thing. I mean, success. I mean, I'm, Nobody's going to be, you know, Michael Jackson. Nobody's going to be Elvis. Nobody's going to be Kurt Cobain. When you can live in this world of success that you can't go out of your house and do normal things you could do four years ago, you know? So it's a weird thing to, to, to speculate on as somebody, ever, you know, who's ever walked in those shoes, you know? I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I am. I'm sort of like, I think when people get a taste of success, as much as they hate it, they still it's what defines them so when they are going to um when you you know there's only like you say only one michael jackson but i i would michael jackson trade in being somebody else for not being michael jackson i don't think so i think he would have stayed michael jackson you know and lived out his life as michael jackson because being michael jackson as sort of maybe troubled as as it was when he was a kid probably pretty probably being pretty awesome really you know (laughs) You know, right. with all like money and success or whatever, and just sort of being able to, you know, I don't know. And but you know, it does it does warp your sense of reality and perception. And you know, that's why you know he didn't write too many records after you know <laughs> after a while because he he probably forgot or didn't know how to do it anymore. And I think that's the problem with success too is that you 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 find yourself like you're trying to recreate what what was awesome, and, and a lot of bands can do that like. You know, Green Day did, you know, with American Idiot. They brought out that record that was like, bam! And like, and Weezer did it with the Green Album. And, and you know, every there are bands out there who sort of made better records than, say, their first record. There's a lot of people get stuck and they're trying to uh, do that record part two. And it's never easy, right. you know. So you always judge yeah, yourself, I, right? You always sort of stop yourself going, that's not as good as that, you know. Yeah, the expectations must be you know, that people put on you and then you, you put upon yourself and say, well, look, I made, I wrote Nevermind and that changed a whole generation. And now I, I did in utero, which did pretty good. Then I did a fucking, the best unplugged ever. And then now what? Yeah. You know, now yeah. what do people want from me? You know what I mean? Yeah. And, you know, and, you know, and you think, you know, well, Weezer put out the green, put out the blue album, but then they put out Pinkerton and they hated Pinkerton, but Pinkerton's like my favorite, one of my favorite Weezer albums of all oh, time. It's my favorite 100%. Absolutely, yeah, like right? That, like, I like the blue the, album and then everything else. I like the green album because it's sort of like, it's sort of a, it, it is a fuck you to the world, we're back. 
And I, <laughs> I like that. I like a comeback story. But that Pinkerton yeah. album, man, I remember being on tour and I listened to that record from a full-on drive from Bangor, Maine to basically New York City. I listened to it nonstop, <laughs> overnight, in constant, constant repeat. And that record, for 28 minutes, it's one of my favorite albums. It's got to be one of my favorite albums of all time, actually. It's up it's, there. I think it's track one. Is that track one, Tired of Sex? Yeah. It? That ending, like thirty seconds, when it gets as heavy as heavy as fuck, man, yeah, it like, starts breaking down. It's like holy, shit. yeah. I know, man. I remember that still. First time I heard that because somebody had put, somebody had turned me on to it because I was like, oh, believe it. Oh, you know, it's not as good as the blue album, blah blah blah. And I hadn't heard it yet. Mm-hmm. And he's like, no, 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 check this shit out. And he played it the last minute of Tired Sex. Yeah, breakdown when it just goes heavy and like holy shit. Yeah, it was like heavy as anything else. As heavy as any heavy metal out there just because you could feel the passion behind it yeah that why bother song too has got one of my favorite drum fills of all time uh it's just before that last verse and it and I, it's one of there's like four or five of my favorite drum fills and that's one of my favorite drum fills because it's just like in that big yeah, it's like oh you know what i'm tingling now thinking about it it's like know, still that record you know that record is so raw and so good and apparently they didn't like it when they put it out they're like man it's not, not nothing special i'm like are you yeah. kidding me that's your best record ever and then years later, I think he put like a whole memoir out about Pickerton. Yeah. Like a whole making of and like really embraced. Like, yeah, it's a pretty good record. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it only took 15 years. And then, yeah, yeah, we like it now. It's okay. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, you would hear all these stories about Rivers, Rivers after that Pickerton record because it was kind of a commercial letdown compared to the Blue record mm-hmm. that he would like, was putting up poster boards in his house about how to write the perfect pop song. And there's all these crazy stories i don't know if they're true or not but they're out there about how he was trying to dissect and make something better than the because he i viewed pickerton as a failure because it wasn't up to the hype as a successful blue record yeah yeah he was going through all these hardcore internal issues about how to write the perfect rock song and yeah you're doing mathematical charts and shit because he's a smart dude he went to yeah. harvard and stuff in the middle of like yes this i don't know if it's true or not but yeah, there's a funny uh, story where he wanted Rick Rubin to produce a record, and Rick Rubin's like, "Nah, I'm, I'm not going to do that." So he bought a house next door to Rick Rubin because he <sighs> wanted to be very <laughs> close to Rick Rubin. And then Rick Rubin did that. I think he did the Living Beverly Hills record. That record, uh, yeah, he did one yeah, record. Ooh, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, make believe or make yourself or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. I didn't, I didn't like it much, but um, <clears throat> no, but that is, you know, it's an interesting. Uh, he's an interesting dude, man. Like, it's definitely like. Yeah, I guess that it was, would he be like the flag bearer of nerd rock, or would he? Be, you know what I mean? Like, oh, definitely. I mean, just because of uh, his demeanor, I think he's pretty introverted. I think, and you know, pretty. He's not, you know, Eddie Vedder climbing on scaffolding, and mm. you know, all that craziness. He's not Anthony Kiedis wearing a sock around his yeah his, his dink. You know, he's pretty reserved. He's he's got the the black spectacles on. I think he's really. Yeah, I mean, if there was a poster child of it, because A, he was probably the most successful of any of those guys who did it. Yeah. I mean, him, maybe Elvis Costello first, something like that. But of the 90s, you know, Rivers, I think, is definitely, like you said. Yeah, yeah. Did you, so what was the 80s and, were you into 80s and what, what 80s music did you sort of gravitate to? Um, the big record, the two big records for me in the 80s, I mean, I really came into, I mean, I'm an only child, mm-hmm. which I equate to the only really music I heard was, from my folks or from the radio or from TV. And I didn't really get like 
you know, you hear these kids who are 13 listen to Iron Maiden and The Cure because their older brothers yeah. or older sisters had those records. I was never that guy. So I was all in the nat- whatever's in the consciousness, right? So it was like, and I'm like, I don't know. You know, it's like Bruce Springsteen born in the USA. It's Bon Jovi, New Jersey. It's like a nuke's on the block. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's yeah. like, that's all the stuff that I knew because, you know, that's all I was really um, exposed to. And then, because my parents at that point are really hadn't weren't kind of kind of buying records. I mean, they were younger. They bought like Beatles, Rubber Soul, and ECR records, and, and and things like that, which I would listen to. But they had kind of tuned out a bit of you know, kind of which the same way I really am now. I mean, I'm not buying as much new music as I used to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I understand that now, looking back. So I was listening to old kind of '70s, '60s records, and then whatever was kind of hip and on the on the national stage '80s wise. Yeah, and what was the big page like? What was the big um, life changer uh, in the '90s? What what changed your yeah music? Interesting to say that it's weird because I kind of remember the the progression pretty pretty uh, clearly. It was like like I was saying is like Bruce Springsteen, Bon Jovi, New Kids, man, and I hold all those because all those records still mean a lot to me. So I have no skeletons of the closet as some people say oh i don't mm-hmm. know people you know what i mean yeah and then um my first cd i ever bought which i remember the first cd i ever played i remember which was digital underground sex packets one of my little and then the first cd i ever bought was uh nwa show to compton and that still came in the long box remember those yeah yeah because they hadn't transitioned over from the records and the record stores so they had to put the cds in the long boxes yeah yeah i remember yeah, that there's a tall the yeah box. yeah yeah the yeah, the long box. I got that was my first CD I ever bought. And then when I got to high school, the first guy who I ever got um, a ride from regularly to school who got his license first was a country guy. Mm-hmm. He got me into a shitload of country early on, like Brooks and Dunn and Alan Jackson and all this kind of stuff. And then the next year, the next guy who I ended up getting a ride with was really into grunge and all that. And the first record that really turned me into um, rock and all that was really Pearl John Versus. I mean, I had heard of all the 10 stuff before, but I clearly remember listening to verses over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And from verses, it really sprung to like, um, uh, heavy metal, like life of agony and acid bath and all this kind of fear factory and it sprung into like porn and all that kind of stuff and system go down and not, you know, head PE. And then after that, I mean, the whole time while this is happening, it's all this nineties Canadian music that was always, you know, closest to my heart, you know, mm-hmm. you know, my biggest memories are tied into like sneaking into, or trying to sneak into glue leg, getting Ray made to sneak me into our lady peace gig at the university. Cause I was carded, you know, yeah. it's going to edge fest, traveling two and a half hours with your buddies and, you know, and staying overnight in a hotel and, you know, going to the, the chart autograph tent to get age of electric to sign your program. And, you know, those are like still the really signature kind of moments really kind of define my high school years yeah there's a guy who used to put on shows named peter, peter jelinski uh and he used to put shows on at university and uh, i toured through there a lot with like snfu uh um, treble charger my own bands uh and i think i see him on facebook but i, I don't know if he's <laughs> still doing anything anymore yeah i don't know the name he might have been Slightly before. Yeah, he would be like 89, well, 87 through, well, maybe 89 through 95 is when I, ex- like, toured a lot through through, through Regina. 
And uh, I used to have a recording studio that would be fit in the back of a van, and I would take it and record out of people's houses. So, so I recorded bands in Regina, um, awesome. like in the like around ninety five, ninety six. And uh, so I have a in <laughs> there was this great um, breakfast place, um, the Skillet the Iron breakfast? Skillet. Oh, Iron Skillet. Yeah, I think it was called the Iron Skillet, and it was like on the on the road out of town. It was an iron skillet. That's right. Yeah, I think it was a chain actually. But I used to stop there, and I always got my ga- uh, my oil changed in Regina because it's like right in the middle of Canada. So for some yeah. reason, I was like, ah, I'll get my oil changed here. And uh, I, yeah, I I have a very very fond appreciation for Regina because it's 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 not Saskatoon and it's not Calgary. You know, it has its own right. energy. You know, mm. and. Uh, yeah, I, I like it. I, I, you know, and so obviously you've called it your home and, you know, it must have, it's probably changed a lot, right? Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's, you know, that, that, that same sentiment still rings true. It's not Saskatoon. It's not Calgary. I mean, I, my whole life we've been shit on with everybody skipping our town to go to Saskatoon, you know, mm-hmm. you know our whole life rarely does a band play both Regina and Saskatoon, a place, you know, which, you know, makes sense. I mean, Saskatoon is a bigger population, Yeah, but you know, Saskatoon, you know, isn't all that either. I mean, I remember seeing Pearl Jam to it, you know, in like 2010 or something, it was half full. Mm-hmm. I mean, that would have been a sold out Agadome when it was called back in the day or Brandset or now. I mean, that would have been sold out in Regina. But, I mean, yeah. Saskatoon, it's still people look at the population, think instant. Like I just, I just went to Morrissey um, last month in Saskatoon and it was maybe a quarter full, half full at the most. Right. And it, I mean, yeah, he has all these weird political issues that people don't agree with, but guarantee if he was playing center of the arts in Regina, the same equivalent venue, I think it would have been sold out. Yeah. 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 You know, yeah, still, it's still like a college. Town. Yeah. What's that country so festival that's just North in the Valley there? Um, yeah, that's a, uh, is a high Valley. Uh, no, well, I think it's, it used to be called big Valley. Jamboree. Big Valley Jamboree. Yeah. Craven now or yeah. Rock the Craven or I don't know, something like that. They, I, they did like a rock version for a couple of years. Like oh yeah. Years, yeah. Yeah. I didn't take, I was there with a country band called Small Town Pistols. We did a, a tour managing a band. And uh, I remember getting there and going, hey, there's no phone service. Like, what the fuck? <laughs> and I had to, like, you know, obviously, like, you know, send messages to Regina because that's where the band was staying. And uh, I remember having to climb up the hill to get <laughs> phone service at this Big Valley Jamboree thing. That's what it was called. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, yeah, that was pretty well. Who was doing? Oh, there's a lot of. It's a big country. It was a big well, country. It's the, big, the biggest of the biggest go to that thing. I mean, that gets the headliner. The headliner. They they're like one of like the stops. I think for. I mean, somehow they've uh, worked that into like being one of the destinations for country acts. It is. Yeah. 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 I remember it being really well put together, and and I remember getting like, you know, we we're just like a two thirty in the afternoon band, so it wasn't like you know we're. You know, you've arrived at a festival when the sun goes down and you get to play when yeah, the sun goes right. down. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. But the, um, you know, so I, I appreciate people that sort of, because there are, you know, people that sort of move away and they move home. And and they do that because it's it's comfortable and safe and, you know, and, and they don't want to be away from home or they have family. You know, is that what brought you back? Yeah, it's really um, being like an only child, you know, it's like, if I had, like, I tried to, you know, live in Dublin for a while, and if I tried to live in LA for a while, and if I had gotten that job, I'd probably still be there. Yeah. But it just didn't work out. So it's like, oh, well, you know, you run out of money. It, you know, it's not working out the way you do. So you come back home, and then you save the money for the next trip. And then I kind of got 
you know, instead of the next trip, I thought, well, the next trip might be trying to get this project made, you know? Yeah. So once I put my energy into this and then, you know, years pass and then, you know, your, your folks get older and you're the only child. So you feel like, you know, you want to be closer to them and be able to help them out whenever you can, because they've helped me on my whole life. Yeah. So like that's something all kind of tying into the same place. So if I moved, they'd probably come with me. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Like, you yeah. know, set up shop down the street or something like that, just because, uh, you know, when you're kind of like a, the three amigos or whatever, it's kind yeah. of the way it rolls, I think. Yeah, no, it's no, it's cool. I, you know, I do know that Regina spawns a lot of great guitar players, and I don't. I think it's because of the what's so cold that people, you know, yeah. in the winter that people just stay at home and practice. There's a lot of great you know bands that, that, out of Regina for sure. Do you know that band uh, Into Eternity? I've heard the name, but no. It's. I mean, I don't know if it's your style of music, but it's like kind of really prog, kind of prog death metal, I guess. If you combine like Dream Theater with death, with th- that basically be the band, like really nice melodies and then really hardcore. Yeah. And then really technical guitar playing and technical drumming and yeah, it's yeah, and they're they've stayed there their here their whole career and yeah, they're they're one of the best that we've ever exported, I think. Yeah. Definitely worth a listen to anybody who's out there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's that's you know, that's cool. And you know, I I, I think the world needs a 90, it does need a 90s documentary. You know, it needs someone to tell the story. I mean, there's a punk one, you know, I just saw it's on um, Netflix that's done over the period of punk rock. And, and um, actually Brent Belke, a friend of mine wrote all the score for that. So uh, yeah. Yeah. So that, you know, it needs to be episodic. Like what you're talking about. It needs to be like to tell all the different genres of what's happening, what happened and why. And, and, you know, and it's, it's always been a sort of like a fascination of mine of people that do stuff like that because it seems so complicated and there's so many moving parts and I'm sure it's mm-hmm. like you it's like people say, Oh, I could do stand up, you know, I could do stand up comedy. Yeah. It's like, No, you that can't. You can do that, you know. And part of you thinks, Well, how hard could it be? But it's very hard. And, you know, people like you should be commended for doing stuff like that. So I appreciate you saying that because it's for the love right i mean obviously nobody's yeah, it's not for the money that's for sure it's just for for the love like you said documenting an era that means something to you and means something to a lot of people so it's a, it's a big responsibility and i take it super seriously you know yeah i wonder if anybody actually really their first documentary is always about love it has to be you know like yeah, the first one they definitely. do and then the second one's probably like okay now we got to find something that can kind of pay the bills but if you get one under your belt i bet you the other one you learn from what you know you know, for instance, even if you started to do a completely different documentary on puppy dogs, you're going to like know everything about how to start. You know what I mean? And it's definitely, yeah, actually, because you have to learn how to, I mean, you know, I remember in film school, it's like, how do you write a documentary? It's all yeah. people talking. How do you write that? It's yeah. the script to a documentary. But there's still like, I mean, you learn how to like, okay, these is the, the this is the act breakdown. You want, this is your story because you do like a shit ton of research and mm-hmm. then. You start talking to people and you're like, okay, that's the type of thing this person would say here. And, you know, you kind of build your story around your idea and see if the people you talk to support your idea. Or maybe it's your idea is something that goes in a different direction because of all the research you've done and the people you've talked to are opening up these new avenues and you kind of explore those and you try yeah. to kind of find it all into one cohesive kind of story that's entertaining and educational and interesting. Did you ever watch the Wilco documentary about Yankee Foxtrot Hotel? I haven't seen that one, no. It is, it is crazy, because they started off, like, it started off, it's just like, a, well, we're going to record, record this album. And then they ended up, like, the documentary people, like, they they ended up, like, okay, we're done. And then they got dropped from their label. 
So then oh, the no. whole story was about them getting re-signed and, you know, and selling the masters back to the people that dropped them for more money. And that's sort of the gist of the story. I mean, it's an insane proposition to sort of be in it and then be blind, you know, like to have to like go find that story because your original idea of the story was just like, oh, these are dudes just writing a record, you know. Right. And they kicked a guy out of the band and it was like just chaos, you know. And they have one moment where the, the manager's talking to the record label and they're saying, I don't think we can work together. And it's like, it's happening. It's on the phone. You know what I mean? And in the, the commentary, uh, we're talking about the commentary. They, they said, we didn't even have time to slate it. Like, it was like, we just started rolling and slated it after because wow. it was happening like real time, you know? So, you know, I, it, that's, you never really, it's really tough to sort of. Yeah. It's a fluid thing, right? Cause you talk, you're, you're talking to real people in real time. And even if you're talking about an event that happened, I mean, it might be something that's not public knowledge, you know, you don't yeah. know. It might be something that's, no, I mean, I'm not an industry insider. I didn't play in a band. I, you know, I'm not privy to these conversations of, you know, dudes who are peers hanging out, talking. And so if they open up and you're like, oh, wait, that's new to me. Let me explore that. And let me see if that rings true with somebody else. Yeah. It's like the three, the three films are really were an inspiration for me when I started this project was uh, Dig, which is about Danny Warhol's and Brian Stone's Sound Massacre. Mm-hmm. Um, the other one, American Hardcore, about the, the punk rock scene, the, the late 70s, early 80s in the U.S. And, uh, which is about the Seattle grunge explosion and how it affected that city and the bands within it. Mm-hmm. Those are like the three that really provided like a jumping off point for me. I just watched those things over and over again. Yeah. And it's, really a, it, it's know? inspiring to watch how people put the story together and it doesn't, it's never easy. I mean, I'm even Ken Burns probably is like when he's putting that <laughs> Vietnam documentary series together, he's probably, yeah, like, I don't know where we're going. <laughs> Yeah, even him. You know, I watched another one about these guys that bought a Segway and they rode it across uh, America on their own dime. Like, they didn't even, like, they, these guys, you know, they supposed to, they were supposed to have money to, to pay for it from this investor. The investor pulled out. Credit cards were, like, not being declined. And, and they bought one. They bought the original Segway. So they thought they could get one donated because they're going to ride it across America. And it's, right, called, right. it's called at 10 miles per hour. And uh, right. it is a fascinating. It was on YouTube forever, and I don't think it's on there anymore. But it was like one of the greatest documentaries because they're drive, they're riding it, and people like are pulling the cop pull him over, going, "What are you? This is a motorized vehicle." Well, actually, it's not. Like they didn't even know what it was, you know. <laughs> and it was one of the segways because like, it was early generation segways. When the battery ran out, it just lost all its everything, so it would just wipe out. <laughs> so the guy would be riding along, and then thing would just lose power, and then he would crash. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And there's another one about the Pirate Bay guys. I don't know if you've ever seen it. Uh, no, it was, it's it. called Not at Keyboard. And it's, um, these three guys that started the, the Pirate Bay. Well, yeah, it was two guys, two thing. guys started it. One guy's like a white supremacist. The other oh, guy's what? like, uh, he's like, he's a drug addict freak. And he, and the other guy yeah. was like the pretty boy who took the fall for fa- for the, for the Pirate <laughs> Bay and uh, went to court. And the other two guys like disappeared. Um, yeah, it's called Not a Keyboard. It's a great, great documentary, and it's. I think it's Netflix tonight. I'm going to see if it's. I don't even know if it's on Netflix, but it's this amazing. You're probably on Pirate Bay. You probably find it there. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that'd be something. That would be irony, wouldn't it? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, something. Yeah, yeah. One more documentary. Have you seen uh, King of Kong? The what? King of Kong? No, no, no. This, this is the documentary. I mean, this is about uh, this dude Billy Mitchell. And this dude, I think Steve something or other, and they're trying, this is maybe 10 years old documentary, mm-hmm. 10, 15 years old. 
And they're trying to set the world record for Donkey Kong on an arcade machine. Oh my God. That's all it does is bring in this whole underworld of like hardcore old school arcade gamers. Right. And there's like this dude in Cleveland who like records all the scores and, and, you know, they send tapes in of themselves playing, you know, and they have to analyze the tape to see if it's any glitches in the tape that might've jumped and, you know, advanced their score and all it's, completely wild and completely rewatchable like really? as much as like an episode of Seinfeld is rewatchable. This is that King of Kong. We've watched this thing. King of Kong. It's like a fistful of quarters. Yeah. King yeah. 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 Brilliant, man. That I just, is my recommendation for you. I just watched the Rolling Stones one on Netflix and uh, I never really liked Mick Jagger at all as a person. I thought he was a douchebag, but you, <laughs> you can kind of like appreciate like as, as you know, guys like 70 plus years old and still yeah. shaking his ass, still got the we'll finger in the air. Woohoo. You know, working hard yeah still working it man and at that age one could be only just just get half as much energy as as that he's still, man he's still fathering children i, mean, I know he's still, he's still fathering children it's insane and keith, across the stage he's still doing other things and eventually keith richards like he just looks like an old lady now he looks <laughs> Just, I know. he's like Mars up there man just like, oh my god yeah yeah just like, like a zombie up there yeah yeah bit. yeah well um yeah man i uh yeah i want this documentary to come out so um thank you whatever sure. uh, whatever i can do let me know um i appreciate yeah f- the fact that you're you're putting the work in and it's uh it's not easy man and uh maybe we can talk after and i can maybe hook you up some people i know and editors whatever are you an editor uh i've edited a little bit i've got uh, a friend of mine who's based out of vancouver who'd, who'd edited the teaser that we had put out to kind of mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah no yes not really edited by trade no yeah yeah well send me the link for the teaser and i will put it onto the description and everything and we'll uh we'll get this thing going well thank you for uh inviting me on the show and giving the platform to kind of talk about the 90s and talk about the podcast and what i'm trying to do so i really appreciate that thing. amazing man thanks thank you and that was mr tyler illinick of the raven drill podcast also the documentary to follow uh, generally a stand-up dude. All right. Thanks, everybody, for shopping on Amazon. Christmas time is coming. Go buy stuff on Amazon. Go to appalog.ca slash Amazon or appalog.ca slash USAmazon to go buy stuff. Um, it's good for... It, it actually uh, makes... It does. It wards off um, infections like colds and the flu. It's true. True story. What's happening? I don't know what's happening next week. Uh, there is a five-year anniversary coming up soon. Uh, I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know who I'm going to have on. But um, I'm going to work on something hopefully special to uh, to mark the occasion. Five years, that's, that's some people that I know marriages have broken up in that time. There you go. So anyways, have a great week. <clears throat> Still warning off this cold. I have, I've had a cold for like two weeks. I know what's wrong with me. I think, uh, see, I'm not, I'm not, uh, I'm not buy- buying enough stuff on Amazon. There you go. Have a great week, everybody. Bye.